Welcome to Season 4 of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. This podcast is all about preventing burnout in the workplace by changing the systems that impact how mums show up at work. And sometimes those systems are part of our social infrastructure outside of work. In the first three seasons of the podcast, I interviewed researchers, DEI and HR experts, coaches and mental health experts. We talked a lot about individual change because that is what we think is within our control. But if we stop there, the collective change that we need will not happen. Only 13% of male senior managers spend time in caregiving compared to 52% of female senior managers. This season, I am therefore interviewing dads. Unless dads are more active participants in the home and more supportive leaders at work, working mums will continue to struggle, burn out, and miss out on leadership opportunities. Men have to make room for women to lead at work, and women have to make room for men to lead in the home. We can't make change alone, so I want to learn more about how we can support men to become active participants in the home and role models for caregiving leaders at work. And when mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I am learning from Michael Ray, who is a solo dad to daughter Charlie. He's an author, speaker, coach, and activist with endless analogies to make sense of the challenges dads are facing in being active parents. He describes all the barriers that dads face in stepping into fatherhood and concludes that the only way to change that dynamic would be to incentivize dads to take leave. Michael's approach to parenting is to ask questions so that his daughter can find her answers within herself, and he shares the joy he has experienced in becoming a connected, present dad. I hope you can learn as much from this conversation as I did. I'm Michael Ray, all the way from Australia. I'm a solo dad to my daughter, Charlie, who's 10. I'm currently 60. I became a first-time father at 49 after a short-term relationship. Unfortunately, her mum plays no part in her life anymore, but it's really opened my eyes to the wonderful changes that it's involved becoming a father. I currently speak to various organisations about some of the outdated gender expectations and assumptions that are limiting all of us, organisational, personal and societal impacts that it has. And I've also written a book on the author of Who Knew? Thank you so much for that. We're going to just go straight into, for some people, a hard question, but it's have you experienced burnout in your life? Are you willing to share any details about that? And if not, if you've been one of these people that has successfully managed to avoid it because you're managing your stress, please give us some ideas about how you're doing that so that we can also learn from that. Jacqueline, I think I was fairly typical prior to my daughter where things would get to me, but I think it was six months after my daughter was born, I had a fairly serious health concern and my future wasn't guaranteed. And it's sad that it often takes looking into the abyss that causes the realisation of what actually matters and how quickly life can change. We're all that 
one diagnosis, one accident, one slip or fall from a completely different tomorrow than what we'd envisaged. And since then, I live every day is like finding that extra chip in the bottom of the burger bag. So when it turns up, it's a bonus. But at this stage, when the doctors were speaking to me, suddenly my life had become like a house that I'd built and furnished and it was on fire and there were flames leaping through the roof and smoke billing out the windows. And in that instant, I was suddenly forced to consider what I was prepared to rush back in to save in that life. And the only thing I could think of was the impact this was going to have on my daughter. Would she even remember me? And those that cared for me. So suddenly the facade I'd been living as a, we call them blokes here in Australia, as a man, just all came crashing down. And I realised how much time I'd wasted. And every day that I wake up is a good day for me now, Jacqueline. So the, the mental load and the things that we hear about, I'm pretty grateful. So I think gratitude is a great thing to avoiding the burnout. And I don't know whether the saying it could always be worse makes you a pessimist or an optimist. It's just how it is. So there's a little bit of stoicism. It is what it is. And Viktor Frankl's book has had a huge impact on me as well. So I don't like the term sacrifice when we hear it a lot the sacrifices I make for my children, I prefer to say the trade-offs. And unless you're a bit of a mug, there are always trade-offs. Gee, can I do certain things? No, but I'm trading. And what am I trading it for? Time with my daughter, seeing her grow and develop. I'd trade that all day, every day. To me, sacrifice denotes giving something of greater value for something of lesser value. And I think it's a little bit of Viktor Frankl's once that suffering has meaning, it ceases to become suffering. I'm doing this for a reason and it's the best reason I could ever envisage. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love so many parts of that, in particular, your analogy of the house on fire and actually saying, because I quite often talk about running out of my job with my hair on fire, but thinking about that house on fire, thinking, what would I go back in and save? That's such a great analogy and mindset to make these decisions by, because I think sometimes it's very hard for us to understand which are our really core values. What are the things that are so important? But if it was that situation, situation. Okay, come on, what would you do? So I love that. Also really appreciate your acknowledgement of the trade-offs and thinking about that as costs, because I think that's something that I really struggled with in terms of acknowledging that every decision I made, every yes that I uh, unknowingly made had costs. And I just was not aware of those costs. And again, I think that's part of my kind of optimistic personality, just saying every opportunity is a great thing. And I really had to learn to see that other side is I was making trade-offs that I was unaware of. So I really appreciate you speaking about that as well. Jacqueline, I love where you mentioned values in there. And That is the key that I find works for me and that I suggest to the others is find your core values. Decide who you want to be before you decide what you want to be and let who you be direct your actions, not the other way around. When I had that diagnosis, I had to consider, was I an athlete? Was I a trainer? Was I ever going to be big and muscly, which was always my persona and my ability to lift heavy things, if that all went away, who was I deep inside? And I wanted to be an empathetic, compassionate, curious, 
person. So at the end of the day, rather than think, what did I achieve now? I try and think to myself, who was I today? And how could I be more like the person I wanted to be? My daughter and I do a thing where we go, right, my daughter's name is Charlie. I've gone, right, who's super Charlie? If there was a Charlie that was super Charlie, who would she be? What powers would she have? Would she be super kind, super helpful, all of these things? And sometimes I'll have to say to her, hey, I call her Bub, I say, hey, Bub, I don't think super Charlie's here at the moment. Which Charlie do we have? And that's why I try and live a values-based life because it doesn't make life hard. It makes it simple because I get lots of offers. I get offers to speak with certain organizations or certain groups, especially some of these, I hate to say it, rancid men's rights groups. And they offer fairly good money, but it's really easy to turn it down because it's not in alignment with my values. So I don't feel that I'm missing anything. And when I get offers to travel and I think, oh, I've got that conflicting, it's going to take me away from my daughter and things like that. Unless I can take my daughter with me, then it's really easy to say no. And I don't feel that I've missed anything because it's in alignment with my values. And I really believe the biggest source of stress comes from when you're not living in alignment with your values, where you feel either you're doing something that doesn't really align or that you're being taken advantage of or that you feel like you should be treated differently and you accept it. And that's the biggest source of stress for me. So it's really easy for me to say no to the blokey things and the challenges that you get to live up to that masculine stupidity type thing. It's easy for me. No, fine. And I'm, I'm happy to chuff off on my own little direction. And that's one of my biggest suggestions to dads is it's not about having the right advice for your kids. It's about asking the right questions because the quality of your child's life or my daughter's life is going to depend on the quality of the questions she asks. So she's got to learn not to listen to the outside stuff, but to listen to the inside stuff. Often she'll come to me, Dad, what do you think of this? So, you know me, Bob, I'm biased. I love it. But what do you think of it if you did it again? Would you change anything? Are you happy with it? Because I want her to be the standard she holds herself to because we rightfully worry about peer pressure, especially with social media and our kids and all of these outside influences. And I want to be able to listen to that voice inside of herself rather than seek that peer pressure, external validation. At the end of the day, it's not what did you do. Who were you today? I was a great friend to so-and-so. I helped the teacher with this, I felt really good because the teacher said that. And But then there's the question you ask, why did that make you feel good? She said something nice. Yeah, but why did that make you feel good? Is it about her being a nice supportive person or is it about you? I, I want to know, but this is how I get to know you. And these are the questions rather than the advice. And that's a very good at appearing super heroic and larger than life and being able to do anything and everything. And that's why I say, oh, Bub, I don't know. Let's find out. I've got no idea. We need to look it up rather than giving that advice all the time, Jacqueline. Oh, I love this. Oh, my goodness. Everything you say, there's so much I want to come back and follow up on that. I love it. Thank you so much. When you started talking about your values and you were talking about your physical size versus the person inside, 
I was going to interrupt and say, is there an Encanto song coming on here? Encanto is very popular in this household and quite a lot here in the US. And then I really think what's important about values is, is one, the exercise you go through to do them, because I think that's where I was struggling. I was holding on to values that I thought I had and thought were important to me and realized they weren't values like hardworking and values like honesty. And then I realized, okay, those things don't necessarily make me a kind, thoughtful, compassionate person. So again, it's like, how do you actually then decide which ones you want? Because in some ways, it's not almost which ones you've got, but it's actually which ones you want going forward and that you get to choose. You get to choose what that is. And I think curiosity is such an important one for me as well, because it's such a good mindset shift. I've worked with a coach and we do these thought models. And one of my co-participants always, if she struggled with a thought, she would just simply put the question, why am I thinking this? And that curiosity changes your thoughts immediately. So I think it's such an amazing tool. So I must say, you do now sound like the annoying toddler to your daughter. Why? Why? What do you mean? So that's such a funny reversal. But I think, too, what you're talking about as well is her listening to the inside. Now, it's that inside mentor that we also have to find because my son's 14 and I'm trying to help him understand that the voice he is hearing inside is trying to protect him, but it isn't him and it is critical at the moment. So I'm really helping, wanting to help him find, okay, but there is another voice in there who can be your mentor, your inner mentor rather than your inner critic. But I think it's so hard for him to even except, okay, that voice is not me. It is just thoughts in my head. We've definitely been going through that challenge. That's what I realized because when I went through some really dark times with the diagnosis and listening to the voices in my head, if I had paid attention to them, and I said, as humans, we have an inherent distrust of artificial intelligence. We don't trust these cars to drive themselves, but that voice in our head, we take it as gospel and we listen to it. And I think, That voice is the artificial intelligence and we can step back and go, you know what, if somebody else just said that to me, I think I'd be either offended or think you're not somebody I want to be around. So it's okay to go, you know what, you're not in charge of this. I can consider the validity or the veracity of what I'm actually thinking. It's like sitting in the passenger seat of the car and trusting the car to get you to the destination. Hang on, the car's going somewhere at the moment where I don't like. It's making me unhappy, stressed, anxious, doubt myself. I'm going to stop the car. I'm going to say, stop, I'm going to get out. And I'm going to try and find a car going back in the direction that I actually want to go. So if I'm having these thoughts, I need to think, well, why am I having these thoughts? Are they real? I don't need to listen to this voice. And one of the things I always say to my daughter, if she asked for advice, I said, Bub, what advice would you give to somebody else? And that's why I say to a lot of friends, whatever trouble it is, I've gone, if you were somebody else and they were giving you this question, what advice would you give them? Because facts will make you think, but it's emotions that make you act. If you're acting on emotions, which is usually a good thing, but you need to also be able to step back and go, oh, here are the facts. Are these emotions valid or not? And we often say to my daughter, Bub, I understand you're feeling like this, but I can't cop the behavior that's flowing from it. So let's discuss how you feel and why you feel. 
but this bottom lip, I understand disappointment and all the rest of it, but look at the actions that are coming from it. Are they helping? Let's try and work it. Let's identify them and work on it. We try and reframe rather, Dad, I'm nervous. Are you nervous or are you excited? Because is it like before you get on the roller coaster? Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I think at the end of the roller coaster, how good it felt when you got through it. So if we say you're excited because it's important, it's your body's way of saying, pay attention to this because it's something that's going to be over and gone and remember it. And the more that you do it, we don't ever want that excitement to go away. But if it gets to the point where it's nerves and from my sporting coaching background, that's what we say, you've got to embrace it. You can't eliminate those nerves and excitement. You've got to learn to perform within it. So when my daughter's feeling, oh, I've got this test, it's fine. It's just a test. You're meant to feel like that. It's right. If you feel a certain way, they're called feelings because you're meant to feel them. But it's your opinion of them. Are they good or bad? It's not bad to be sad. It just is. It's normal. It's to be expected. If you didn't have sad, you wouldn't have happy. And that's why I say to them, we've lost just a few loved ones, nothing great. But that's why I say to them, um, grief is the only sure 100% proof of love. If you weren't really upset by that, then you wouldn't be really sure if you loved them and it mattered. So the two go together. You can't get rid of it. It's like the orange and the skin. I don't really like the skin, but I like what's on the inside of it. That's what life is about, good and bad. You've got to embrace that disappointment and sadness and happiness and the whole thing because that's life. My goodness, Michael, you are the king of analogies. I love it. <laughs> I used a baked Alaska analogy in my TEDx talk, and I quite often talk about behavior change being like a mission impossible, where you've got to plan and do everything that the Mission Possible team has, including having explosive cues to action. So your analogies of the inner critic being like an AI, the orange and the skin, the roller coaster. These are all such fantastic tools that really help us communicate with our kids when we're struggling to imagine what those things are. And I can really relate to the anxiety. My daughter is nine and she definitely gets excited and nervous. So we're constantly working to say, okay, which is it? How does it feel? And I remember that I was a cross country runner and still carried on doing 5Ks for years. And even when I went into labor, the nerves, I was like, the nerves are telling me that I'm about to do something important. In some ways, it's the physiology of my blood leaving my stomach and preparing me for something important. And I want to treat it in that way because I want it to do my best. And this is actually just my body helping me get the best out of myself. So yeah, I know she struggles with it, but it's something that, again, I feel like, oh yeah, I'm glad when I get nervous because I'm going to perform. It's going to be good. It's going to be a performance. So that that's great. Yeah, Jacqueline, I think it comes from being a swim teacher for many years and having to get across the kids' concepts and trying to explain in a way that five and six-year-olds are going to graph. So it's no good me talking about the dynamics of moving through an atmosphere and all of the technical stuff. It's a way of breaking it down. And that's what I'd say to people. It also helps with being culturally aware, knowing that just because what you think is common sense and should be understanding doesn't mean the other person. We can have a room full of people when I do my talks. And if I can't connect with them on their level, doesn't matter how brilliant, funny and smart I think I am. 
someone could be sitting next to somebody and the two people having a completely different experience because of their situation, circumstance, upbringing. And that's why I say we're who we are because of what we've experienced, not because of any moral failing or intelligence or anything like that. And what we value oftentimes is what society tells us to value. And that's why I say until men realise that they can be admired and feel good about themselves, not only for their power, position, possessions, and all of those things that typically male held up as, you know, oh, he's successful. And until fatherhood is spoken about in the same glowing terms as motherhood, and dads are recognised for their raising and nurturing of the next generation, things really aren't going to go anywhere because men feel like, I want to be, see, everyone wants to be successful. When you say to somebody, what's the secret of life? Well, whose life? We're all different. Some people, the secret of life is just surviving, just getting clean water. And the successful days where you haven't been under the pump and nothing's gone wrong. And other people want to have a house, a car and trips overseas. And is that really you or is it other people's programming? And that's why I say to people, a successful day for me is judged on how much time I get to spend with my daughter, how much appreciation I get out of the little things how many new things I noticed that I hadn't noticed before, like something in nature. And it's, wow, look at that. And seeing my daughter light up, that's what makes a successful day for me. Yeah, great. And I so appreciate teachers. I have a fantastic tennis coach and I was a professor, so I know how hard it is to teach. Didn't think I was very good at it. But my tennis coach is able to break down moves and give me analogies like swinging a purse or something. And I'm like, okay, I got it. Now I feel the movement. I can see it. I so respect that because teaching is, it, it's much more challenging than most people think. I played rugby and I tried rugby coaching and terrible at it. Not my thing. A good teacher is just so valuable. So let's talk then a little bit more about how we can transition into having fatherhood as a nurturing role versus simply the provision of monetary or material goods role. How, how can we make that shift? Because your experience was a life-changing event that helped you make that shift. And for good or bad, not everyone gets that opportunity. How do you help people um, make that shift? Because again, I think some people may be choosing not to because they don't know yet what the benefits are or because it doesn't look that great as well. Sometimes my life as a mom isn't that great. That's what I had to decide. It wasn't the life I wanted for my daughter, but it's also not the life I want for my husband either. So yeah, tell us a little bit more how you help men start to value the time with their kids when that's maybe not in their playbook yet. Yeah, please don't think I'm some awoken, sensitive New age man, I've got no doubt that I would have slept, walked into the typical heteronormative dad provider, mum runs a home. That was my template. That's what I saw in my family. Mum and dad married all their life, successful marriage, did really well. Three kids, two of them turned out okay. It's, and it was just what it was. But if it hadn't have been for suddenly my daughter's mother and I, separating at six months and within two weeks I had the diagnosis as well so I'd been sick for a little while at nine months because I didn't get to see my daughter for three months so I came from a place of scarcity and there's you get into that zeitgeist where it's 
you hear all the negative things. I never get to see my kids. Like a lot of dads don't get to see their kids for whatever reason. Some of them are completely justified with the scourge of domestic violence and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of not nice people who cause so many problems. But then you hear the horror stories about family court and just that place of scarcity. It was if I survive, that's one thing. If I get to see my daughter and have a meaningful, significant relationship. So it's just all about that desperation. And that's why I say to dads all of the time, don't take it for granted. But we men grow up, try and think of a contemporary representation of a father in the popular media that is a good representation. There just isn't one. They're all bumbling man-childs, Homer Simpsons and Al Bundy's and all of these things. Compare that to the Disney fetishized depictions of motherhood with only a mother's love, mother knows best, maternal instinct, and all of these things that say mums are just naturally good at this. Well, both of those do a great disservice to both genders because it puts immense pressure on women who may be struggling with the normal frustrations and challenges of trying to raise a child, everything from colic to sleep deprivation to breastfeeding. And there's so much expert advice out there. But it also says to dad, well, the best thing I can do as a man is to do whatever mum tells me to do. So I want to be the best supportive dad of all times. So I will do anything that mum says to do. There's the beginning of the mental load straight on mum. Straight away, dad's assigned himself to the role of second pair of hands or an assistant. And there's a reason why in organisations, those at the top get paid more because they're controlling the whole thing. Often we dads think the best thing I can do is to parent like a mum. So I've got to do things. The data tells us that children with an involved, present, engaged dad have so much, so many better outcomes in such important areas that continue right through into adolescence. So do dads parent differently to mums? I hope so, Jacqueline. I really hope so, because just as we know now, the data is so clear that diversity, not only of gender, but of all roles in any organisation increases the success of those organisations. The same within the family unit. And we know that there are only basically four parenting styles. There's lots of other stuff where people have gotten trying to get too smart to do it, but there's basically authoritarian, authoritative, permissive and negligent. Well, we know straight away negligence not going to be good. Permissive is where the child controls everything. And we see that a lot now where some parents feel like being the good kids. Authoritarian, we know that's got to be bad because that's the command and control often seen in narcissistic parents where it's more about how the parent appears. But that authoritative, where clear guidelines, involvement in communications, hair guardrails, stay within that, that's great. Now, if dad has a bit of fun doing it, and mum doesn't, mum takes a lot more seriously, it's still that authoritative parenting. There's still compassion and warmth and connection, regardless of how it looks like. And it's the same with humour. Men have a completely different humour to women, but both are funny. <laughs> They're different. It's the same with parenting styles. So that's why I say to dads, don't listen to the voice in your head that says you don't know what you're doing because no one knows what they're doing. Women don't know what they're doing but women are expected to and the pressure on them and how harshly they're judged. If I turn up with my daughter 
hair done messy and all the rest of it. Dad's mum turns up. She's not a good mother. Mum has a successful career. What about her children? Dad has a successful career. Oh, he's a good provider. Mum, dad, birthing parent, non-birthing parent, non-binary, binary, whatever. We are all parents parenting. The verb is parenting. That's what we're doing, regardless of who you are. And we all need to get rid of that. So my thing is, you're not meant to know how to do it. Did you start at the top in the position you're in, the organisation you're in, or did you learn your craft along the way? Did you go to school? Were you an expert speller in grade two, or did you learn as you went along till it became easy? It's not simply a matter of mother knows best as what it is. Practice makes progress. The more you do it, the easier it gets. It doesn't get easier because your children mature and grow. It gets easy because you mature and grow just as much. The stuff that you used to panic about, don't sweat the small stuff. I love Jane Goodall's got a quote. If chimpanzees have taught us anything about parenting, it's that it should be fun. Relax a bit. As long as you don't drop them too often, they're pretty unbreakable. As long as you're there for the connection, don't judge your child's behavior. Don't judge your parenting on your child's behavior. Judge your parenting on your behavior as a parent. Because that's what I'm like, oh, kids will be kids. They're learning how to be human. And all the advice in the world doesn't take into consideration both your child's unique character personality and yours there are certain people we don't like we clash with and we don't get along with what happens if it's your child we talk about coercive control in relationships a lot of our parenting is coercive as well so are we setting our children up for this do this and you'll get that do this i'll give you approval do this and get this outcome get this grade win this sport the captain of the team, and everyone's going to be impressive. So our children are often incentivized to find the easiest route to that outcome rather than having a genuine curiosity for, I don't know anything about this. I'm a beginner at it. I'm no good at athletics. I don't care. Do you enjoy it? Good. Then You're not meant to be good at it. You've got to learn to, and the same with dads. That's what I say to them. Just get in, get involved. Because one thing I can say without fear of contradiction, 100% of the fathers that I speak to who have stepped back from their corporate or providing things and into a more hands-on involved role are 100% satisfied that they did it. In the beginning, oh, the nerves, can I do this? You know, it's like getting a new job. The stress, the workload, then suddenly you get your routines and systems in place. You come to that expectation because with change, and especially Jacqueline, you know this, there's a lot more comfort in a level of discomfort that is familiar than seeking something that just may be possible, that may be good, but it's that change. With the athletes I train, it's very easy to go, you know what? I tried it before and it didn't work. And I, then I tried it again, especially when I have clients with weight loss. Look, I did it, didn't work, did it, didn't work, didn't work. Say so the thing, oh, it doesn't matter. I've got this pattern I'm going to do and it doesn't work. And that's why I say to dad, what's the smallest step in the right direction that you can take and take consistently? Is it Saturdays, a, a routine? Is it 10 minutes when you get home, park the car around the corner, get all your emails done so that the first 
30 minutes at home is just 100% up to your kid. Find this one. And suddenly that action creates the motivation. Suddenly my self-perception is changes. You know what? I'm not a bad dad here. I'm not my kid. We have this connection. Suddenly, instead of her in a room, she's out on my lap. We're talking and it changes. And it's never, ever too late to be exactly the sort of father you want to be. But you've got to decide who do you want to be. And I always finish my talks with three questions, Jacqueline. Decide what sort of father you want to be. So again, like we do with Charlie, who's super dad? What do you want to do? kind, responsive, non-shouty, unconditional love. Decide what sort of dad you want to be. Then figure out what's in the way of it and then do it because it's never, ever too late to be exactly the father that not only your child needs, but you need to feel good about yourself. If dad's working 80 hours a week and killing themselves, and I'll do anything for my kids except for that little bit of discomfort about changing your self-perception, except for going, I don't care what other people think. It's my child that matters because it can all go away pretty quickly. That's so important. And I think that was part of my experience too. So really part of my burnout journey started as soon as I became a parent. I had a very successful academic research career. But when I started parenting, I didn't like myself because I was authoritarian parenting and I didn't like being that person, but I didn't actually know any other way at the time, but I just started to go, this is not who I want to be. So luckily with my son, he is on the autism spectrum. And so we changed schools because of that to a charter school, which is still a public school here in the US, but it focuses on project-based learning and social emotional learning. And So we have this curriculum that the school does and then the parents also learn called positive discipline. And it is exactly what you're describing, that there are no longer rewards and punishments. This is about understanding consequences and doing something because inside it's the right thing to do. I definitely found that such an important journey for myself because again I could let go of all this sort of micromanaging and the coercing and we have what we call mental health days where nobody is in charge we all just do what we want for a day that's whatever you want to eat whatever you want to do and I love those days too because there's no rules to enforce I get a break from that too it's just understanding that there are times when we all need to just be in control of everything every part of our life it's very easy in the busyness of life to slip from that authoritative to the authoritarian look just do it now we've got to go come on quickly and we delve backwards and forwards but then that's why i say don't beat yourself up on it then you just need to explain why you were authoritarian at that moment and straight away you've slipped back to authoritative look i'm sorry i had to push you i'm sorry we had to hurry but this is why Do you understand? Are you okay with that? Because if this keeps happening in the mornings, we're going to have to keep having to hurry. So how do you think we could fix this? And when a child has genuine input, as a swim teacher, I would get the naughtiest kids put into my class because I found that the best way to get these kids on board is to empower them. Tommy, I need you to make sure that all these guys are doing their kicks properly. Do you understand what their kicks are meant to be? Can you keep your eye on them and let me know? And I would have parents saying, 
my goodness, I can't get him to concentrate. It's just give them some room. Great leaders and great parents don't hoard power. They give it away. That micromanagement and that helicopter parenting, you're setting yourself up to do it for the rest of your life. So when you have time, I said, we're all very busy, but when it's, you get it done your way, uh, let's see how you go. And then my daughter and I, we talk a lot about systems because life is busy, but what system can we put in place? And she'll go through it now. And that I think if I did this first and then this, and then that, I'll bub you brush your teeth before you've had breakfast. So what do you think of that? Oh, yeah, you're probably right. So she'll actually write down lists. And so well, that's good. We don't want to be doomed to repeating stuff without thinking, but things change too. But kids love to know that their contribution makes a genuine effort and they like to be included. So you know, sometimes we're so busy and it's, oh, it's easier if I cook dinner. But what do you want for dinner? Here are the choices. Oh, I'll have that one. Great. I need your help. Yeah, love it. Come in and cook and so rather than just, this is what we're having, oh, I don't like it. But then I said, but why did you decide that? Oh, we had this the other night and that the other night. So I get her to even question her own choices and try and figure out why she made them. Yeah, that's definitely so valuable. And again, part of that positive discipline is actually have family meetings where the kids are solving the problems. They not only put the problems on the agenda that they want to discuss and you don't then have to address things in the moment. You address them on the agenda when you're feeling calm, but also then the kids are problem solving. What solution do you think? Let's vote on them if we have different ones. And they have so much better solutions to things than I could ever come up with. So it's so fantastic to empower them to problem solve. So just you touched on systems there and sort of before we end, we will end with hopefully your favorite dad joke, because I agree humor is so important. And I did improv and stand up comedy because, as you said, mums can be funny, too, (laughs) as part of my burnout recovery. So we'll end with a dad joke if you've got one. But before that, this is a large scale social change that we need to make. How do we make that? Are you thinking about it at this social cultural level? Are you trying to influence brands to stop positioning dads as hapless caregivers? Or are you working in organizations you can make a difference? Or is it mostly that you're trying to work with the individuals? And because as a public health person, I know that we need all of those. So do you have any thoughts about some key levers that we could pull in various places? Jacqueline, I work across all of those spectrums. We are at the supermarket once, and I think Charlie was about eight, and she noticed, she said, Dad, why are there no boys on the packages? Oh, I hadn't noticed. So we went, walked every aisle in the supermarket. We photographed, there were 28 products with a person on them. Out of that 28, only three had men on them. So everything from baby products to laundry products to skincare to all of those things, so at eight years old, my daughter's being told domestic duties, your realm. So again, we rightfully call out the blatant, obvious, sexist, gendered uh, rubbish that's around, but it's this subversive, subliminal stuff that slides under the radar. We see, especially in America, mum approved doctors, mum give mum some peace of mind, all of this stuff, nothing for dad. So we need to call out that in the zeitgeist there's a fine line between parodying dads and just becoming dismissive and denigrating them and my golden rule is if you're not one of them don't make fun of them we've seen a few media depictions like bad mums and things and they're notable 
for the depiction of mums who are the dad version of a parent. I speak with organisations because one of the things, well, in the equality debate, the equality debate or movement is the only behavioural change initiative that I can think of that says you, the target, the prospect that we want to undergo significant societal stigma change, you need to do this for the benefit of someone else, of women. If men do this, women will be better off. Never going to work. Altruistic, noble, fantastic, sounds good in theory, but it's just not going to work. When it comes down to what's in it for me, we need to shift the narrative of telling men how much better off women will be if you know they took more paternity leave and start telling men what's in it for them. Men who are more egalitarian at home have better relationships. I hate to go there, but they even get more sex. Children, dads, their children have better outcomes. We need to stop this. Equality needs to happen for women. Equality needs to happen for society because men are better off. Women are better off. And most importantly, our children are better off. When we have all this, men need to do this because women are suffering this. No, tell men what's in it. For them, and I know it sounds not as nice as men need to speak up and all the rest of it, because no, men need to stop being dictated by the rules of what it means to be a man. Because I can tell you right now, Jack, I'm, I've been in a room full of blokes that were trying to fit in with a room full of blokes that were trying to fit in with a room full of blokes that were all go, well, I need to be this way because I think he's this way. And most of the time, we're telling ourselves stories about the stories we only imagine that they're telling themselves about us. And no one knows who they are. And that's right. I don't care what you do. I want to know who you are. Hi, I'm a bricklayer. I live over here. Great. Who are you? Not what you do. So that would shift the equality debate further into the thing. Start telling guys what's in it for them. Start telling guys you'll have better mental health. You'll be more in touch. We've got seven out of nine suicides at the moment. Men, we've got the single largest killer of men in Australia between 18 and 44 is suicide. You're not being true to yourselves. We're broken. We're living lives of quiet desperation. And that connection, that ability to go, you know, I'm happy for him not to think I'm how he thinks I should be because living that way, I can't do it. But we also need to empower our girls as well with that, because now the equality movement has gone, if you're not a career woman, and that's why women are suffering so much mental load, because the overwhelming majority of equality initiatives were set up to support mums who were doing the majority of caring. And the data clearly shows that women who avail themselves of flexible work have less chance of having an egalitarian, equal relationship at home. Here in Australia, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency has found that 70% of workplaces currently have flexible work as a goal. Only 2% of those workplaces have set targets for men. So egalitarian relationship at home, yep, we're equal. Something pops up, children come into it, mum, school rings, bubs is sick, you got to come and get them. Dad says he's in the 98% that don't have that thing. Sorry, mum does. And that's where it starts. We hear about affordable childcare. It's stopping women entering the workforce. 
that's a symptom of the problem that men aren't held equally responsible. We mightn't be able to get free childcare or affordable childcare up, but we can instantly say if dad takes half of the load, it's not going to impact mum as much. And it becomes a parental issue, not a women's issue. Enable, encourage, and then expect, move forward with the expectation that men will be equally responsible for raising the next generation. The male-dominated industries, construction, transport, manufacturing, are the least family-friendly ones. But because the pay gap pays into it as well, dad earns more. Gee, if someone's going to take the day off, it's not a gendered decision. It's a financial decision taken for the benefit of the family. And to say that men are winning because they're earning more, men are being restricted from being fully involved and engaged in their children's lives. And so we need to point that out, that the pay gap doesn't only affect women, it hinders dad's involvement with their kids' lives. We know the motherhood penalty can take up to 12 years for a woman to achieve a career back on the level of what it would have before she had those children. But we need to then mention in that same breath, what about the fatherhood forfeit? where dads miss those first, that connection, the involvement and input with these children. We need to get rid of these gendered assumptions, outdated gender assumptions, stereotypes and expectations because no one's winning, not women, not men, not children and not society. For too long, workplaces have dictated the roles and dynamics within the family and we need to stop that because we're seeing it now where women, we've gone, great, here's a freeway into the workplace. You, you've got it, but you're still carrying the load at home. No wonder mental load and burnout for women is such a thing because dads haven't been enabled. We've got the freeway into the workplace for women and we've got a rickety old staircase behind a locked door. And oh, we've got parental leave for men now, but it's like Fight Club. Don't mention it. We've got middle management working 80 hours a week and we've got men saying, oh, I'm going to take six weeks paternal leave. Really? Oh, how was your holiday and all these microaggressions? And we rightfully call out sexist and culturally insensitive language until it comes to dad. Holiday? You mean raising my child, being involved and present? Men are seen as less committed and less involved with their work, but they're also then painted as not quite great parents as well. So it's I can get good credit for being fully involved and working 80 hours a week, or I can be ridiculed as somehow not doing it. And that's why women feel, who's looking after your kids? Dad, Ooh, really? And it's just so then mums have the mum guilt and the mum shame. And that's why I say to women, and they say, oh, what sort of mum are you? You mean one that's setting the example with a great career and all the rest of it. What a great example. Not only for your daughter, because I struggle with the gendered nature of examples that we say, oh, she's a great role model for women. Now she's a great role model, full stop, because not only does she show girls what's capable, but she shows boys what they should expect and accept from their partners. So I, I really believe in you can't be what you can't see, but I also add on to that, and you won't accept what you don't expect. I see women that are achieving amazing things everywhere, and I don't point them out to my daughter as a great role model because of their gender. I point them out as a great role model because of their abilities. The same with men. I say, bub, you can do that as well if that's what you choose. So we need to get rid of that as well because we're just siloing everything. This is what a successful woman looks like. This is what a successful male looks like. 
this is what a successful person should be like and the gender shouldn't be there. And some countries are doing that. They're not using gender pronouns or names or anything for the first few years of life in places like Norway. And those are also experiments in does that change what happens there? But I really appreciate this because we are at a status quo. In fact, in the US, I'd say we're going backwards. There was just a report out today of the wage differential of expected wages post-COVID, and women are expecting way less than men. And so I feel like we we have gone backwards to the 50s. But I agree, we need to change that narrative. So I think this perspective of really, as you say, enabling and encouraging men for what is in it for them, I think that's so important. And like you say, recognizing those forfeits, there was a great new book out of a professor from the UK about the fatherhood forfeit. And it is so hard when you are choosing to be a parent and then all the barriers that men have that are greater than women who have chosen to parent and work that they're facing. So yes, it, I really think we do need to shift this more. Also, Jacqueline, the family is a unit. We got rid of silos in businesses and organisations where that was the factory floor, this was the office, and this, and never any silo should meet. That's what happens in fatherhood. Here in Victoria, the first point of contact and the ongoing support hub for new parents is still the maternal and child health centre. And I've never felt more like a third wheel. And the first question when I turn up, where's mum? She's not involved. Why? What happened? Yeah, can we get to me? And even when my daughter's mum was in it, I was struggling to start with. I was struggling with health. I was, and not one question was asked of me. But then it all falls on mum. A less than optimal functioning dad, guess who the pressure falls on? A less than optimal functioning mum without dad being brought in about here's what breastfeeding involves. Here's what colic involves. Here, are you okay mentally? Are you one of the one in seven to 10 dads suffering any perinatal depression? Do we need to get you help? Because as a unit, if any one of you is struggling, you're all struggling. The load's going to fall on it. Dad's, I remember the midwife saying to me after my daughter was born, I was in shock. And any man that's not in complete awe and wrecked with a sense of guilt watching their wife give birth, I've got, I can't relate. It was just, what have I done? I feel so bad, all the rest of it. But the midwife was a large south african lady and she turned to me at the end of it and she said you did very well you sit there and you shut up and none of this silly you did very i was in shock i was holding my daughter's mother's hand and sweating bullets on the edge of like fainting and all the rest of it and i've been told that i did because i sat there and shut up really is that weird dads and then i got asked do you want to cut the cord and I had the shakes that bad. And then they said, no, look out, we'll do it. And so I missed that as well. And then bub goes to mum for skin on skin and I'm there. And when I speak to dads, most dads don't feel that they're dads until they've been responsible solo for looking for the kids. Mums seem to feel like they're a mum. The minute that pregnancy test comes up, I'm going to be a mum. Everything changes in that instant, but they have that expectation as well that one day I'll be a mum if they're that way inclined. But a lot of dads don't feel like they're a full proper parent until they've been entrusted, until mum's gone away or they've had the whole day. I'm actually a dad. And so 
we need to be aware of this. And the same when I say we need to enable, encourage and expect, that encouragement, imagine if we incentivize dads, if we said, dads, here's a slightly higher parental payment for you to do it so there's no financial penalties. Imagine the shift we could have in society when suddenly dads start taking the space that will create in the workplace. It's the same, Jacqueline, when I speak to organisations. So if you've got your best team on the field 100% of the time, you're setting yourself up for failure. If you've got men in your organisation have managed to become vitally replaceable and so important within the organisation and somehow a bit player in their family, both you and your workers are managing the wrong things because if you want to see a productive productivity drop off, show me a bloke going through divorce or having family problems or worrying about their kids or being pulled in two different directions of where they want to be versus where they are because you've got the expectation, right? You had your child, now you're back. Straight into 100 hours a week or whatever ridiculous things and the school called, can't your wife do it? Too many organisations patting themselves on the back. How good are we just rebadged our maternity leave to paternity? But then suddenly school calls and Tom wants to go and do the school run because we're trying to create behavioural change. So if we incentivise it, and people say, well, why should dads get paid more? Do you want this change or not? And if you don't think that we're encouraged every minute of your life, we do it with taxes. We do it with penalties. We do it with fines. Why do we have speeding fines to discourage you from doing something? Why do we have tax breaks and negative gearing and refunds for certain behaviours? Why do we subsidise certain industries to get you to do it? So let's look at encouraging dads in a way that will start this ball rolling because once we get going, because at the moment this inertia is there, once dads realise, I can do it. Because one of the other things, Jacqueline, I think is funny is there's so much narrative around it's hard, it's unpaid, it's undervalued, and men need to do it as well. And that's why I say I'm not trying to discount anyone else's reality, but it's the best thing I've ever experienced. It is fantastic. Dollars for donuts, give it to me all again. There's nothing in life that has given me more fulfillment, more happiness and more purpose than being a parent. But men want what women have and women want what men have. And if we just come together and stop going, we should have what you have and you should have. We all want the same thing. We don't want to be locked out. The things that men feel they're sacrificing is the time with their kids and the work that they put in outside of the home to make sure the kids have resources. The stuff that mums feel that they're sacrificing is the stuff that keeps them in home. So their career is their study, their outside life. And no one should have to do that. We should all be able to go, I want a bit of that and you want a bit of that. Let's all work work together because no one at the moment is winning, Jacqueline. That's so true and so eloquently put with all the facts and thoughts and your understanding of teaching and behavioral change. I really appreciate that. This has been so helpful and helpful for me personally to think of these things because I haven't valued that perspective. I'm often asking my husband, I said, you can stand up, you're CEO of your own business, a small business, but you can stand up and do this thing. People have lives and people expect you to have a life too. But I think the way you've expressed it here has not been, again, shame is not going to get us anywhere with this. As I say, we need to be 
embracing this positively, hearing positive stories of dads like you who are saying, not like what I'm saying, which is motherhood's hard and it's miserable a lot of the time. Of course, my husband doesn't want that, but if his experience can be different of it and he does it in his way, that's going to be so important because also then I'll be in a better shape too. So if you want to end with a dad joke, because again, I think there's so much importance in bringing humor into this. Um, if you've got one you want to share. Polar bear walks into the bar and he says, I'll have a beer. And barman says, sure, but what's with the big pause? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love it. I love it. Same bar, the polar bear walks, goes to the toilet, comes back, he says, the bar, he says, I don't want you to think I'm silly, but every time I walk past the end of the bar, I hear this little voice going, you look nice. And the barman looks down, he says, oh, that's a peanuts, they're complimentary. <laughs> this is good. I bet you could do this all day. <laughs> all day. I used to do stand-up as, as well, Jacqueline. And yeah, my daughter always says to me, you're not funny, Dad. And I've gone, people used to pay money to come and see me, Charlie. So let's just go with popular opinion that I'm funny and you just don't have the sense of humor you should have. No, Dad, you're not funny. And we have a conversation in our house. The kids think Dad's fun. And I'm like, yeah, Dad's fun, but I'm the one that's funny because I've done the stand-up and improv. This has been such a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much. And you've had such amazing words of wisdom. I think brief to end with. Dad, if you're out there and you're doubting yourself, that nerves, again, it's not nervousness, it's not doubt, it's just, it's important and it's not that hard. Don't fall for it as long as you're connected, as long as you're open and remove that expectation of your kid, your kid's learning how to be a person and you're learning how to be a parent. Don't be hard on yourself, don't be hard on your kid because they're not doing it to test you. If you find your kid really pushing your buttons. It's not about your kid pushing your buttons. It's about your buttons being so easy for your kid to reach. Just don't respond. Look at why is this making you angry? They're learners. Just ease up, enjoy it. Look at the growth and look at the world through your child's eyes. There is nothing better than seeing that excitement and wonder of the ordinary and tasting new things and seeing new things and exploring nature and getting involved in that. Wow, look at this. It's what life's about, Jacqueline. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. Would you like to join a cohort of women like yourself who want to disrupt the status quo but are facing constant barriers and like you are beginning to wonder whether your approach will even gain traction? Have you experienced the supportive environment of executive group coaching, knowing you're not alone and learning from others' mistakes and strategies, but you want to have more concrete goals and measures of progress? In conjunction with my leadership training, I'm facilitating small groups of women executives in peer learning collaboratives. This is a scientific process that it's used in medicine when important new recommendations need to be put into practice and there's likely to be pushback. Peer learning collaboratives leverage the supportive environment of group coaching, but with more targeted goals, 
greater accountability and a quality improvement process that measures impact through learning cycles. In my training, you'll learn five new evidence-based strategies to support your leadership confidence and credibility, including how to use macro and micro root cause problem solving, how to create culture change through daily behavior change, and how to manage change and burnout. The Peer Learning Collaboratives will provide a safe environment for you to put your new skills and strategies into action while learning from other women leading similar change efforts in their organizations. As you face barriers, we will problem solve together, empowering you to use adaptive experimental processes to help you build more resilient and informed solutions. A peer learning collaborative has three phases. In the co-design phase, members are brought together from diverse areas to establish buy-in and shared ownership. Building trust is important in this phase through shared values and expectations, shared vision and goals, open communication channels, and conflict resolution processes. In the collaborative learning phase, the group process is further solidified through peer empowerment, accountability partners, and celebrating small wins. The experimental process then starts with needs assessments, behavior targets, logic modeling, and plan, do, study, act cycles. In the adaptation and scale phase, lessons from the learning phase are translated into best practice guidelines and operational toolkits. Case studies are shared and champions are empowered to promote the findings and benefits to other units. How often do you find that you're trying to prevent the fires that men love to put out? You're spoiling their quick fixes and save the day hero-based approaches. Instead, you can see the forest and the trees. You want to disrupt the status quo with more collaborative, adaptable, long-term approaches that change how and why we work, bringing in flexibility and greater purpose. Yet your ideas are dismissed and the systems remain stuck, perpetuating bias and burnout. My training will give you the confidence and credibility to lead through change, manage change, and leverage change for transformational change. It will show you that your intuitive gendered intelligence is supported by tried and tested scientific frameworks, and it will provide you with more processes and tools to leverage that knowledge for greater impact and social good, based in public health science, behavior change science, and implementation science. Never before have we been through a global pandemic, racial reckoning, mental health epidemic, or great resignation. With a recession looming, post-pandemic stress levels are likely to remain high and resources low. Reports from Deloitte, Microsoft, Adeco, and Modern Health show that employees are dissatisfied with the current fix-the-person solutions and want to see transformational change in the organization itself. The need to lead with impact and provide return on investment is greater than ever, in more uncertain, challenging, and complex times than ever. During these times of monumental change, there have been few guiding frameworks for leaders. There are not yet evidence-based solutions to these new emerging and urgent problems. So it's even more essential to use evidence-based processes to manage change. 
My behavior science tools will enable you to embrace complexity, lead through change, and manage the overwhelm. I want to help women leaders with a new playbook for compassionate and competent leadership in times of change and complexity, with evidence-based frameworks and strategies for moving beyond the status quo and leading the workforce of the future. When you join a peer learning collaborative, you'll gain confidence, camaraderie, and compassion for the challenges you face. We will use scientific tools and processes to guide our progress, use behavior change strategies to keep us on track, and key indicators of change to evaluate our impact. Over a 12-week period, you'll set goals for the changes you want to see in your organization. You'll operationalize them as behaviors. You'll prepare your organization for change by creating a safe learning and growth culture. You'll roll out and measure what is working and why, and develop ways to overcome barriers to change. You'll share your progress and challenges with the other executive women in your cohort so they can benefit from your experience, so they can provide support and ideas for solutions, and so that together you can exponentially grow your learning, leveraging each other's adaptations and innovations to similar problems. The training and cohorts will be available in 2023. In the meantime, I've created a free masterclass to introduce you to the five key strategies because change can be scary and you still might be uncertain about what it takes. My five evidence-based leadership strategies are leading through complexity with compassion, understanding root causes and solving macro and micro problems using the social ecological model and lessons from public health, leading with impact, identifying and operationalizing key change levers using behavior change science and strategies to create sustainable habits that change systems, leading with insight, creating the conditions for a culture of change using psychological safety, emotional intelligence, rewarding daily behaviors, and empowering role models. Leading with curiosity, finding and testing new solutions for employee wellness, retention, and belonging using peer learning collaboratives as a supportive and science-based process for managing change and developing resilience. Leading with clarity, understanding and managing multifaceted burnout so you and those you lead can thrive through change using multi-level burnout solutions. If you're ready to start on a new leadership journey, I look forward to guiding you through this in my online course and supporting you in a peer learning collaborative. Please direct message me to get access to the free masterclass or sign up for the 2023 start. And please remember, Burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control your